Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. and welcome to this special episode of It's a Fandom Thing. Today, I am very honored to be virtually sitting down with author Tony Roth. Tony Roth has written a new novel, which is his very first, his debut novel, and the first in his Nicholas Ford series called Trigger Point. And Trigger Point is all about Midwestern farm boy Nicholas Ford, who had no idea that when he signed up for the CIA, he'd be asked to give up his name, his personal life, his freedom, and his morals. Now he must ask, how much can a man sacrifice for his country and remain true to himself? It is a suspenseful novel that takes place in Central America and the United States in the 1980s. He is caught in the crosshairs of a corrupt dictators and political operatives who want him dead. Nick Ford must complete his mission, though. If not, even his handler won't be able to save him. It's a very exciting page-turning novel um, that I can actually, for me, when I read a novel, I also like to see if I can visualize it on screen since I'm a visual person. And you can visualize a lot of stuff going on in the novel. And so I'm excited to talk to Tony Roth about this one. Tony Roth has been a farmer, an Eagle Scout, a college athlete, a musician, and a serial entrepreneur. He has flown more than 11 million miles, holds six patents, and is the youngest of five competitive brothers. Roth founded a national care management company in 2014 in honor of his late father, Nick, Nicholas, excuse me, Nicholas Ford was inspired by true events and created over many glasses of scotch, blending years of bar stories, long-standing friendships in the intelligence community, and new research. I loved the way that was described, Tony. So welcome to the show. Thank you for sitting down with me. And I love the way it was described over many glasses of scotch. Yes. <laughs> That's just so interesting. I'm still consuming many glasses of scotch. <laughs> <laughs> Not right now, I will let everybody Not know. right now. <laughs> Not appropriate, yeah. but... Uh, <laughs> I had glasses of scotch just last night with my son. So that's still a uh, a, a good <laughs> pattern for me to relax and storytell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And get stories out of people too, I'm sure. True. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, uh, Tony, Trigger Point is set in the 1980s during a time when uh, President Reagan had ordered the CIA to overthrow Central American governments. 
what was it about this time period and these specific events that intrigued you? I don't know if I'd use the word overthrow, but he was definitely uh, persuading them. Uh, the, the, the story that uh, evolved around Nicholas Ford uh, was inspired by true events because um, there was a recruiting going on at the University of Illinois, and I, I ended up with lifelong friends out of that recruiting era. And uh, we started telling stories about these escapades of how the government narrative would shift sometimes rapidly and sometimes frequently because it was back during an, a time when media wasn't quite as intrusive as it is today and it was easier for the government to shift its narrative and reagan was uh inappropriately getting congress to approve monies through what we call the u.s aid which is aid and economic development and there were fronts being set up uh, out of the embassy in Bogota, Colombia, but the money was really filtered through the cartels, up through Panama, and then used to arm and supply the freedom fighters in Nicaragua. And it was all about good versus evil, because in a weird way, the Ukrainian thing today is reflective, because the ideologies of Putin is very much still what was going on in the 80s, still happening today. And so it was Reagan's way of working around the, the government and then supplying freedom fighters in order to squelch the communism and the USSR's push into Central America. Daniel Ortega, the president of Nicaragua, was um, not playing along with the U.S. government. And so it became a, a miniature war that was going on. And, and the Sandinistas were being trained, being armed and being supplied by covert missions. And I, I found this back in the 80s to be extremely uh, unnerving on one hand and extremely interesting on the other hand as to fighting fire with fire. If you talk to the intelligence community the folks that were involved, they will tell you, oh, we're archangels. And then if you talk to the the other side, the, the more what I'll call liberal side, they'll be like, oh, no, this is totally wrong. And then there's this group right in the middle that get caught in the crosshairs. And I always thought there's these poor guys and women that get caught because they're patriotic and they want to help. And then they get told that this is what they're going to do but when they really get boots on the ground anything and everything can happen and that's what happens to nicholas ford and i like bringing the human element from the 80s forward and trying to learn from those mistakes and mm -hmm. and and victories uh you know today because i think history does repeat itself so that's oh, yeah. a long-winded answer to your brief question but hopefully it sets the stage <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it does. And I think it's important because, you know, we don't, we ignore history a lot in this country. We just, and in the world, we ignore it. And that's how stuff like the Ukraine happens and stuff is we don't learn from history or, and we, you know, like they say, you're always doomed to repeat yeah. it. And that's what happens constantly. And it's amazing how you'll look back, you know, I mean, I've, I've talked to several authors recently that wrote books about Hitler 
And the playbooks that are being used now are the same playbooks that were being used back then. So, That's yeah. Right. And, and there are other people that are caught in the crosshairs that people don't really think about, I don't think. So that's yeah. important yeah it was interesting writing this in the in today's time i wrote it during covid in literally 90 days uh because a lot of it was driven by memories and conversations and then i went back and started researching around those historical events and therein lies your historical fiction book right take mm -hmm. real live events and then you know do the what ifs and the embellishments and the fun uh but for me, it was it was um, it was a little bit cathartic because I had known so many people back in that timeline and still know them today. Some have passed, some are still alive. Uh, but when you think back about history and people's behavior, uh, it was it was a very fun project for me because I wrote a narrative book and then I handed it to the editors and the editor said, "Great characters." horrible writing because <laughs> it is my first novel. And so I was lucky to find a 75 year old. Ironically, his name is Daniel Roth. Uh, but for about 25 years, he started with Simon Schuster. He did all kinds of books. He was most claimed to fame bringing books to movies, even in the mm -hmm. 70s, when it was still a new thing to bring books out specifically for movies. And he Taxi Driver, Martin Scorsese, all these things. He's kind of semi-retired now, but he 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 got a hold of my book. He's married to a beautiful woman from uh, Bogota, and so oh, she yeah. read the book. And all of a sudden, I I had a cooperative editor who blasted me on a one-page review, and then offered a thirty-minute phone call, which has now turned into a two-year relationship and an ongoing uh, editor, you know, mentor kind of relationship. But he taught me. He said. It's got to be real to the reader, and it needs to come through the dialogue. And I had never written much dialogue ever. So he taught me three-act structure. He taught me how to write dialogue. But I would tell him the dialogue from memories of people telling me what happened at a bar, literally drinking scotch. And uh, I, and he would look at me and goes, that's not believable. And I'd say, but that's what really happened. <laughs> And so, and so th those were challenges, you know, of getting this into a story that's good for commercial reading and yet still has some elements of raw uh, courage, raw drama, raw human elements around Nicholas Ford and the, and the real turmoil that he has to go through both personally and professionally when dealing with an, a whole array of characters in this story. Mm -hmm. So it's it's it was a fun process. Sounds like that's that's pretty incredible though that you went from that getting that note of basically you know this is horribly written, <laughs> yeah. and being able to sit down you know with somebody yeah. who is renowned and who has been working in the industry for forever. I mean, writing is incredibly hard and it can be an incredibly lonely process. So being able to have someone there to help you with that and and if, and also just you know. I mean, truth is stranger than fiction a lot of times. Yeah. So hearing yeah. those stories. I had a too, wonderful yeah. muse who um, read every two to three chapters as I was writing it over COVID. And she's also acknowledged in the book, but she just kept saying, just get it down on paper. I love the characters. Stop criticizing yourself. And, 
And then I started looking back and, and you could tell there were nights when I was writing and I'd had two or three scotches. And then there were early mornings when I was crystal clear and um, and it, it read differently. And so yeah. all of that got smoothed out with the editing. But the character lines, I think, are most important. I think mm -hmm. I'm hoping this turns into a longstanding series. So that's that's the goal. The Nicholas Ford series. So yeah. we'll see. I, I I can tell because it is left on a cliffhanger. I won't say, of course, but it is left <laughs> on a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, so I, we you talked a little bit about some challenges of just writing your first novel, but what challenges did setting it during a specific time period present for you? It was fun, actually. Uh, for me, I, I drafted a storyboard with the historical events and then I reflected and started writing notes down and just really jumped into writing the story as it was told to me uh, by intelligence communities, uh, officers, case officers, State Department, FBI, DEA. It's funny, you know, there um, you get different views right from different branches of the government or agencies. and. And then I went back and started doing the research and I married up a lot of the research that was um, published back from, say, 1985 to about 1992 and about the agency, about Reagan. And there's a fair amount of documentaries out as well. So I started watching these documentaries and it was inspiring to me because as you literally see Reagan and Bush state department and then you read about it in the new york times or you 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 watch um different publishers coming out with things uh and then you look at the actual agency has published things now because it's beyond the 19 years so there's things being released uh now to the public that weren't available say 15 20 years ago <laughs> and all of a sudden you've got a complete story and it's as a I love being a fictional writer because I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, which is fact based. Right. You, mm -hmm. you can't be an entrepreneur and survive 20, 30 years without having some reality checks along the way and really dealing with just what's in front of you. So I, I'm a pretty good writer on the business front, but I had to kind of convert that over to just flat out. Well, it doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, this really is a fictional story. I think it stirs a lot of the emotions from people that are probably more over the age of 45 than, say, under the age of 29. <laughs> so the book is trending, you know, more toward people who actually like the historical uh, factors because they it stirs memories in their mind as well. But I really enjoyed the process. I like it. I, I like historical fiction. I can... I have about a dozen books in my head, two or three already, you know, going down on paper uh, because I can see the timeline for Nicholas Ford and let and, and I'd like to see him mature and hopefully become a very interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's yeah. And I think, you know, especially if I mean, I was a kid in the 80s, but especially if you grew up in that time period at all um reading about it it kind of can jar memories that you may not <laughs> have remembered even if you were a kid uh yeah. and it's such a specific time and you know d depending on your generation and what you grew up with and you know it's I, I always say like you know to me i think generation 
I think um, Generation X are kind of the forgotten generation, honestly. We're kind yeah. of just forgotten about. And it's always interesting revisiting that. And uh, we've talked about that a lot on my podcast and other things with talking about movies set in that time and how a lot of it was about that. And I think you can even see that in this um, in this novel as well, with especially with even the character of, of Nicholas Ford, who, um, you know, he's supposed to be getting married to Anna, who yeah. does not know about his life yet. Uh, you know, he grew up on a farm, all that stuff. He grew up in this very simple, quote unquote, simple life. Um, and he seems to be going through the motions with Anna. But I think there is a part of himself that longs for that simple life that she represents. Do you think he really loves her? Or do you think he just wants to marry her for what she represents to him now, especially yeah. since he's not constantly in that simple life anymore? Yeah, Nicholas Ford, you know, he's a, he's from a farm family, as am I. And I'll, I'll admit to you that a lot of the foundation of Nicholas Ford is me because I had a hard time saying, well, how should we design this character? And it was easier for me to actually look at my own circumstances, having been recruited. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to make Nicholas Ford this guy. And um, I think a lot of people in the 60s, 70s era uh, growing up, especially in rural America, and I'm speaking about the Midwest primarily, so I don't want to upset anybody in rural America, but I have deep roots still in the middle of Illinois, not Chicago, not, not lower Illinois either, but right in the middle near Springfield, there was a contingency out there where you go to school, you make good grades, you try to figure out your career, you get married and being part of college was picking a spouse, basically, whether you were a, a girl or a boy, you had expectations from your parents. And I think Anna and Nicholas in this book got caught up in wanting to please their parents and they loved each other but they didn't really know what love was they weren't ready for a relationship and their career demands they were both driven anna was an engineer and a good one and wanted to go into computer engineering and be the first woman to do all these amazing things and of course nicholas was off on an adventure thanks to his recruitment from vincent and so immediately they were they were not being honest with themselves or each other. And I think that that's what leads to an interesting tale of, well, we did this for our parents, but now we're, we're living our professional lives and we're having all kinds of problems. Not to mention Gabriella with regard to Nicholas, but yes. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a big problem. So I'll, I'll jump ahead to that then, since you mentioned Gabriella. Um, so Nick is, and this is not really much of a spoiler because it's right in the first chapter too, but but Nick is having an affair with Gabriella, who is his interpreter. Um, and he does have some guilt about this, but he almost seems to be okay with it and kind of justify it because... She is part of his other life, of his, you know, alias Sean. She's part of that yeah. life. And do you think that is an excuse he tells himself to feel better about it? Yeah. I think Nicholas Ford grew up watching 007 movies and thinking that from a compartmentalization perspective, uh, this is part of my job. <laughs> and if this is what's going to happen, then this is what's going to happen. 
But at the same time, and I won't spoil it, but there's a lot of interesting twists and turns around Gabriella because she's not everything she appears to be in chapter one either. And that relationship actually turns into a deep, deep uh, loyalty and bond between Gabriella and Nicholas and uh, an important one for both of them to survive uh, many of the missions and, and operations that are going on. So it, it's a, I think it's a discovery. Uh, I think Nicholas is discovering more about himself and more about what he values through Gabriella than he ever imagined. And uh, so, so there is a love triangle here. There's a back home sweetheart from college and families involved and you know, all the, all the drama, right. And family mm-hmm. dynamics and all of those issues are haunting him and forcing him to go back and forth. But at the same time, I think he is disconnecting and compartmentalizing when he goes down to Central and Latin America to work under the alias of Sean Smith and be part of the Bogota USAID embassy programs. And he gets to sit with these nefarious characters. And he is playing, in his mind, the role that the government wants him to play, which includes Gabriella to a certain extent. So... Yeah, yeah, and I and when you said um, James Bond, that very—I mean, granted, admitting I've only seen one James Bond movie in my life, um, but I know one. You understand the formula. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I—I mean, like, like I'm a huge Mission Impossible fan. That's what I like. Oh yeah, Impossible. So it's so there is, I think, in in uh, people's minds, you think if you get involved in this, you'll have something like that, some exciting. And I think that's what he's thinking. He's like, okay, she's part of this exciting life. So I can compartmentalize it that way. Um, But like you said, yeah, their story is very interesting. I don't want to, I'm not going to give too much of it away, but it is interesting little twists that happen and twists and turns and how, how it's left too is, is, is kind of a cliffhanger too. So yeah. Uh, Well, going back to Anna and getting married and kind of, following along that plan and it's actually something that it looks like the cia wants him to do which was very interesting to me because that kind of surprised me but they want to do it and then they want to persuade her to join in secrecy after they are married and he's supposed to you know come clean with her and he keeps putting it off and not doing it and it's something that he's struggling with and he's very anxious about but a big reason he seems to want to do this is because statistically, it seems that CIA operations officers that are married last longer. Uh, you get the statistic that 44% of CIA operations officers are married. Was this something that you learned from your conversations with the intelligence community? Because for some reason, this surprised me. I would have thought having a lot of connections might have been, been, I don't know, more of a detriment. But I don't know. That's That was yeah. interesting to me. So it's, I think they were learning back then because when, when I did the research, it is true, 44% field operatives in the 80s. And this goes back again to that era of, say, 1985 to 1991. During that timeline, they were recruiting uh, young people and, and they, were, they were moving away from the Yale and the Ivy League recruitments only. They were moving into the heartland. Uh, They were looking for loyalty and trust and patriotism and willingness to work and get your hands a little bit dirty and not 
you know, and, and be a good soldier in, in many cases. So there was a, a movement going on to recruit. And I believe based on my interviews with a number of intelligence personnel from that era, that they believed in their hearts that someone who had the stability back home would make better decisions. And then deep down the maniacal, narcissistic and somewhat Machiavellian side of the CIA was more about, oh, okay, well, trust is good, but control is even better. And if they could control their agents because they had this connection back home and could, you know, make them understand, oh, we want you to be able to get back home, you know, and then they would control them that way. Now, ironically, when you read the statistics that were then published in around 2019, and all of this information starts to come out, 88% of those marriages were ended in divorce in less than two years. So almost nine out of 10 were dissolved within two years or less, uh, which is also a true statistic, which I can send you these reports if you want, but it's, it's very sad because I look back at, at a lot of the men and women who were manipulated, their lives were changed forever through these dynamics and relationship woes that were thrust upon them unknowingly. You know, mm -hmm. Nicholas Ford was encouraged to get married, but then the minute they realized that Nicholas wasn't gonna be able to trust Anna and her family, and he just couldn't bring himself to bring her into the CIA's family, well, I won't be a spoiler, but that marriage was over and Vincent made sure of it. <laughs> and he also made sure that the, the record was clear. And um, Vincent is a very unique, powerful guy. Uh, there, there's going to be a lot more of Vincent over the next two books because there's two kinds of agents in the field, really, from the 80s. And again, I'll reference these, these are. These are people that I know. I think it's totally a different agency today. So again, this goes back to the 80s. But there were there was the, the field agent that wanted to do dramatic things, make an impact, and then become a political beast within the CIA or within the State Department or the White House, the executive branch, right? And then there were guys and, and girls that just wanted to do their very best, and they loved the adventure of being in the field. And so they become more lifetime oriented operators. You know, they're they're willing to travel. They're willing to go into different uh, environments and they want to be in in that part of the ops team. So Vincent very much, I will let you know, is a political beast at heart. So he's constantly thinking a year out, two years out, five years out, uh, not not what's going to happen next week or in the next couple of months. So, yeah, he's a very, very interesting character. So I'll ask you a little bit about him. And I thought it was also interesting because I'm sure and I don't know if it'll come up more politically and especially in that time period. He is a gay man who is in a relationship with another man um, and in a very, very close relationship is the way it, it seems. But he doesn't appear, at least it doesn't seem like he is actually out to the agency and to everybody. Uh, so I thought it was interesting to to have that as well, because I know in that time period, 
I mean, that was, I mean, this is before, of course, don't ask, don't tell and stuff, but, but right. still the homophobia and everything like that uh, would have been really hard, especially if he wants to have that political career. Sadly, that would be something that would probably come up. But his relationship with Nick is so interesting because of the fact that Nick knows this. Nick knows what his what his personal life is. Um, he's very close to his to Vincent's partner as well. Um, he respects him, and um, so there seems to be more than just this handler kind of position there, where Vincent yeah. is more than just his handler. So, do you think? Uh, how do you think Vincent really views Nick? I guess is is really the big question. Yeah. Just friends or you know, just colleagues, or is it deeper than that? I think it's a brotherhood uh, that's forming in this first book. Uh, and Vincent it, it is based on a real life character. And so you've got a, a man who is homosexual in, in the 1980s. And yet he is a man's man and undercover, speaks five languages has that chameleon look about him where he could be Latin on Monday and he could be English on Wednesday and then he could be German on Friday. And he's very a dangerous man because he's got genius level IQ. He's uh, a constant strategist. And uh, I did a, an interview, one of my very first interviews was in February of this year, and I'll never forget it. It was a Connecticut radio uh, program, and the, and the host said, isn't it, you know, this is based on a true person, and you speak so highly of them, and, you know, this, that, and the other thing, but I guess, he goes, I guess it's really good to have friends in the CIA, right? And I... <laughs> I, I, I did have a scotch. It was in the evening and uh, I blurted out. Yeah. So it's great to have friends in the CIA until it's not <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it's kind of the edge that Vincent and Nicholas have, because on one hand, Vincent treats Nicholas like a family member and brings him into his inner circle and it's blood. And you feel like these guys love each other. But at the same time, Vincent's not going to always let that love get in the way of his own advancement or the mission's success. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is very interesting because it leaves Nicholas out there wondering from time to time, am I expendable or am I an investment or am I what, what am I? to the agency and what am I, Nick, Nick is asking himself along the way. And it creates a very unnerving kind of relationship that you have a hard time figuring out. And it's not resolved in book one, I can tell you. It's uh, very much left open. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's a very interesting relationship and he's a very interesting character. Um, to have in here for sure. Yeah. And I figured he was probably based on, on someone real or a combination of a few people. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, there's always yeah. collage of characteristics, yeah. but yeah, he's a, he's a very unique man and he's a wonderful man, big heart, but uh, also can be, you know, a killer at the same mm -hmm. time. So those are very uh, interesting people to have in yeah. your storyline. <laughs> yeah, I bet. 
your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Uh, well, the recruitment of Nick actually started in high school with, with um, Merle Voigt, who was one of the teachers. And he saved Nick after Nick got into a very violent fight one night. Um, and that anger that Nick displayed is seen as an asset. Uh, but Nick seems to struggle with that side of himself a lot throughout this novel. Uh, where do you, can you expand a little bit on where you think the anger might come from? And do you think it is really an asset or do you think Nick thinks it really is an asset? I think it's an asset for Nicholas Ford if it's used correctly. Um, but he's young. So he makes mistakes in the book. And uh, there was a, an old rule of thumb back in, it's a phrase from the 80s. I'll go there, um, showing my age again. But um, he used to say, if you're going to survive inside the agency or on, a, on, a, on an operation in foreign land, you have to have at least 2% trigger polar inside of you. You have, it's kind of like being a surgeon, you know, or a fireman or a first responder of any kind, really. You have to have that ability to shut down the other uh, myriad of thoughts inside your brain and compartmentalize for that instant. What are you going to do? If, if, if you have a, a physician surgeon working on you and it's brain surgery and suddenly uh, they notice there's a problem. You want that that surgeon to be able to shut it, shut down all of his other emotions and just do exactly what should be done for your brain. Well, it's the same thing when a policeman has to make that decision in a millisecond or a fireman has to run into the burning building. He has to go or she has to go with that gut instinct to say, hey, I'm just going to do this because it's it's what needs to be done. And I think that's what Nicholas Ford showed at a very young age in high school. He had had enough of it. He had four older brothers picking on him his whole life. It's probably a whole nother psychological book in that. And he had these bullies constantly picking on him and then fighting with him. And he went too far and swung a two by four and did some damage. And I think he, he's regretful. Uh, he carries remorse for his trigger pulling issues, but it is a part of him and it will save his rear end from time to time throughout these books. <laughs> I'll tell you, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a requirement, I think for survival, but it does lead again to that the human element in this book, I hope, differentiates it from a formulaic James Bond or a Jason Bourne or a yeah. even a Jack Ryan. Um, I think that I'm hoping that the character of Nicholas Ford, and that's why I love your podcast, will come yeah. out because there is a lot of human elements in this book that the action's there and the fun is there, but there's a lot of human elements in this book that I think would be very interesting for the audience to pick up on.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of those is is displayed when very early on. So this isn't really quite a spoiler because this happens in the first couple chapters. Nick does kill a man. And he struggles right away with that. You see that it's not like something he can just turn off. In the moment, it's like it's it's what you were talking about. It's he's got a split second to make a decision in that moment. And his he felt threatened. He felt his life was threatened. The man had a gun on him. Um, and, but you see him afterwards struggle with guilt over that. And I think there's even a part of him that's like, well, was it really? Was my life really in danger there? What did I do? I took a man's life. What's that going to do to everybody else? What's going to be the ripple effect of this and the ripple effect for him? And there are some after effects of that. Um, so was this inspired by anything you learned from from those conversations you had as well? Was there a lot of guilt that they had? It's it's a horrible thing to carry around with you. Um, and I've heard so many stories and most of them are they lead you to a moment of sadness because the, the, the question isn't even about the moment that a life was taken. It's about what could I have done before that to avoid the, the issue altogether? Because I think as people mature, it's okay. I'm not going to judge myself over that action that I took at that moment, but could I have done things better ahead of time? And in the book, and again, I won't be a spoiler, but Nick tempts fate. You know, he's young. He's excited about his mission. He's got things happening. And he's trying to figure out if he's being tailed, followed, investigated. And he tempts fate. And it turned on him. And he and he had to make that first kill, which, uh, which again, Daniel Roth did a great job. My editor, no relation, Daniel Roth. Uh, we always say that between he and I, yeah. we don't look alike, you know, we're not, he grew up in Brooklyn originally. I'm a farm boy, but he, he took that first kill and said, this has to be the opening because this sets the stage for Nick's turmoil. And it really, you're right. It, it, it does set the stage for his morality issues in question and his heart. You know, does he have the heart and soul to have that 2% trigger puller and be licensed to kill? Uh, You know, you're not only, it's a great line, and I hate to say it, I think Ian Fleming wrote it, but it ended up in one of the Bond movies. And and, um, Ian Fleming did a great job of, originally his books were great collages of characters, but he he said, you, you know, you're licensed to kill, but you're also licensed not to kill. And I think that moral question, I'd love to bring that out more and more and more in Nicholas Ford throughout the series, because the people that I have known for 35 plus years, they, uh, that question should be explored more, I think, uh, with field agents. Mm Yeah, yeah, because it's very, I mean, in a way, it's similar to when you have, I mean, it's not exactly the same, but when you have soldiers, when you have people go Mm -hmm. off to war, and in that moment, and when they're at war, they are having to kill people in order to survive, and they're having to watch their um, fellow soldiers 
get killed as well. And I know like, I will never forget my, my dad was in Vietnam and I'll never forget when he took me to a replica of the wall and pointed out all the people he knew that had died and carrying around that and carrying around the having to every day is fighting, 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 no flight really. But although there might be some times of that. So having your, your body in that constant state I think people don't realize until they get back. That's why there's so much PTSD, right? How that really affects you psychologically. So I think it's interesting to see just this one with this first kill, having him struggle with that. And then, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, there's other stuff that happens to him in this, which I won't give away. He learns to compartmentalize really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he realizes yeah. Nick Ford realizes, Hey, I'm in the thick of it now. Mm-hmm. And that first kill is is noticed by local uh, government and uh, law enforcement officials throughout Bogota. And um, so he created an even bigger problem for himself in the book. Uh, <laughs> that first kill. So it, it, yes. it's uh, it's a it's a sad it's a sad tale that that happens to a lot of people um they get recruited by an agency and have to go into those circumstances and they they tend to pull the trigger a little too quick and then they find themselves paying for it you know mentally psychologically physically and and being put in danger so it's a it's a hopefully it's a good grabber for the book you know it grabs you in the beginning and it bonds gabriella uh because she is a sounding board at that point and um so off they go they're now in it together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot more interesting, I think, to read that and to have someone have an actual conflict and reaction to that, both physically and mentally, instead of just like, oh, that happened. And now I'm going to go kill 10 more people like that, that kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. I mean, and, and that happens. It's like <laughs> a lot of those. It's like just boom, 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 boom. And there's no after effects of that, which to me doesn't seem realistic. So I think so that is very much appreciated that at least, you know, that you're exploring that with him and it's explored, like you said, throughout. Yeah, I think the book, the book evolves into, there's a difference between duty and orders. And there's a difference between orders and loyalty to your country, to yourself, Mm -hmm. to your morality. And boy, those things are very difficult to dissect. Uh, and so that's, uh, that leads Nicholas into the crosshairs at times, even with Vincent. Yeah. 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 Very, very, very much so. Yeah. All the way up through the whole thing. Yep. <laughs> now I know you already <laughs> said there are parts of yourself in Nick Ford. I know you already said that, but are there parts of yourself in any of these other characters as well then? Oh gosh, I don't know. You know, Philip Roth, <laughs> uh, another no relation, but great author, right? He, he <laughs> never, uh, had very much commercial success until he decided and it was a trip back to his home area that I should put in more about what I actually know and have experienced and whatnot. So I I know there's elements of just writing uh, style or embellishments from the bar. You know, they, the, the funny joke behind that, and this is how I'll leave you with an answer for that. Uh, uh, So we, not as frequently now, but from about 2000 to 2012, we used to have periodic uh, get-togethers. And we would meet at the Beverly Hills Hotel, which is featured in the book frequently as kind of a rendezvous spot to just escape and get away, right? 
but we would do that and I would attend and uh, we would be drinking at the Beverly Hills hotel bar right off of the lobby. There it was a nice little bar and had a long area and people would come and go, come and go. And we would be telling stories. And so inevitably everyone would point to Roth, right? Let Roth tell the story because I would make them look better. <laughs> so I would take their stories and I would just make shit up. <laughs> Sorry for the French, but oh no, it's I fine. <laughs> I literally just would make it up, and uh, they would they would all be standing there. That's great. <laughs> it would be about them, <laughs> but they're like, "That's a great story." And then eventually, around 2006, they they started saying, "You should write a book. <laughs> you know, these are great stories. You should write a book." And that really hung with me up until COVID. And then I took my time away from travel and, mm -hmm. and um, literally wrote the book. Uh, but so it was inspiring to go back to your very first comment about drinking scotch and telling stories that around 2006 is when it really got planted into my head. You should write these things down. This is very people. This is entertaining, you know. Yes. So, so that's that's how it evolved. So you already had that natural storyteller instinct there, and it was just a matter of eventually putting it to pay to the page. Yeah, yeah. They like my yeah. version better. <laughs> <laughs> they like tell our story, so it sounds better, more intriguing, more. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, and I just want to know on on that note. Then going a little bit, this is uh, wasn't on the outline, but I just want to know with the writing thing, as far as like you know, because a lot of people want to write and they have stories in their mind. And you were even told this isn't very well written when you mm -hmm. first. Wrote. So how did you take that? And I know you eventually got hooked up with someone who was helping you. But how did you take that and not be like, oh, I give up. That's it. I'm not going to continue. Uh, well, I'm an entrepreneur since like yes. <laughs> the early 90s. Uh, and I pretty much have sheer will and persistence and I said goodbye to my ego a long time ago. So I think if you have a major ego, I think a lot of people would have taken those criticisms and said, oh, my God, I'm not qualified. Mm -hmm. I decided to say, well, wait a minute, Mr. Know-it-all <laughs> to Daniel. Uh, tell me, t teach me, right? Just teach me how to do this. And so I became a student. Uh, which is very exciting for me. I'm, I'm 57 going on 58 and learning how to do something new is I think a great part of life. Uh, I had written 113,000 words. Okay. So it was really long and very narrative and, uh, it's about 70, I don't know, 78,000 words plus or minus now, just to put it in perspective. <laughs> And uh, I think it's very, I think writing this type of entertainment story, historical fiction, you, you need to have a team approach or you're not going to get honest uh, reactions. So I had, a, I ended up with a great team of three or four different editors at one point who were looking at it. I had a person who then took it and basically said, hey, um, I can do a great trailer. And her name is Lisa Tolls, and she's a crime fiction author. 
And so I had very strong people around me, encouraging me and helping me. Yeah, we don't like this or we don't like that. Or, you know, have you thought about a different ending? At one point, I, I was going to be finished. Gabriella may not be a part of the ongoing story. Oh, my God, you'd have thought I was killing the Pope. You know, uh, so <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, and her, her character in real life uh, did go on and was around. Um, and as far as I know, she's still alive today. So the person that inspired Gabriella. So I think, I, I think having a team and saying goodbye to your ego and wanting to learn, those are all key facets if you're going to be writing a book and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I've, I've written screenplays before, so not the same thing as writing a novel, of course, very different. But, you know, the big thing you will learn, and I, and I went to film school, and in screenwriting classes, what they will tell you is, you know, what you have to realize is in every one of those studios, they have scripts piled from the bottom of the floor all the way up to the ceiling. And people that are reading them aren't the big decision makers. They have script readers who then decide what gets passed on. So it's such a, it's a hard industry to get your foot in the door. And so you will be told no a million times before you're told yes. And it's just the way it goes. And so if you can't, and you might never get anything done, right. that's just the, the reality of it. But if you just take that one no and go, okay, that's it, I'm done. Or the one person that doesn't like it, that's it, I'm done. And if you just go with that, then you'll never succeed. At, well, at anything, really. But especially in any kind of artistic thing. Yeah, it's a long process. Uh, there's a great documentary about Ian Fleming. Uh, and uh, it inspired me. I literally watched that as I was writing uh, the first, I don't know, 50,000 words mm -hmm. uh, of that, of the really crummy 113,000 words that I started with. And, um, but he had a series of books that were somewhat successful before he got the book to movie deal for Dr. No. And I am a huge, I love reading and I love writing as it turns out, but I, uh, I am also a big movie buff. I mean, I use movies as an escape. And so I, there's not very many movies that I, haven't seen in the action thriller romantic romantic comedy etc or at least can reference and i will tell you that um this this character nicholas ford series is i'm in it for the long haul i'd like to keep writing even if it's just a hobby for the next 10 years and if i can end up with a dozen to 15 books or better great and if it eventually gets picked up by some Hulu, Netflix, movie making house. Great. Uh, even, even more fun, but, uh, we think we have the elements, so we're, we're in it to win it long-term. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well then I want to know, cause you said you already have a few novels already plotted out and planned out and started. So are those all Nick Ford novels? Yeah, I have one. Uh, I have a family drama in the back of my head because people seem to appreciate the fact that Nicholas Ford has four older brothers and all these horrible family dynamics that he has to deal with between Anna's family and his family. And mm -hmm. so there's a, there's a little 
there's a little story up there somewhere, but right now I, I have two more uh, Nicholas Ford books in the making that I would love to bring out over the next one to two years and, and have a trip. The trilogy will be mostly all set in, you know, us based, but again, central and Latin America book two, um, while every book has its own conclusion, you're right about the little bit of a, it's, you know, got a little hook at the end there to make you want to go to the next, okay, what's going to go on now, but I will give you a, a slight, uh, preview of the operative, which is the current title that we're, we're contemplating for book number two, but it's really set back in 1989, mostly, uh, in Panama and, uh, throughout Central America. And, and, and again, the U S embassy in Bogota is the Western hemispheres agency, you know, headquarters, if you will. So a lot of it evolves again around the problems that stem from uh, Manuel Noriega and the fact that he's no longer playing ball appropriately with the CIA or the U.S. government and has been such a double dealer on every facet uh, from politics to drug monies to um, tempting fate with his own arrests. And there were so many missions that failed to get him to remove himself or to quietly go away. And as you might say, change, right? Regimes in uh, Panama that it, it led to the, what's now called an invasion moment. And uh, that was very unfortunate. It's very dramatic, but there were a lot of threads behind the scene going on. The agency was heavily involved. Back then psyops were more manual than they are today. Today, everything is virtual and digital and manipulative through social media outlets and everything in between. And, but back then it was very much on the ground, <laughs> you know, psyops stuff. And so Nicholas does get called back in because of his innate knowledge. He, you know, a lot of the first book, you use Panama private airstrips to do a lot of the exchanges because that's how you could, go, you could go in undercover and come out undercover. And Noriega was a big part of coordinating that because he held control. Now they want him out of control. So therein lies book number two. And uh, you'll be shocked. The archdiocese is involved. You know, there's some advocates that are very politically connected to the White House and to the State Department that are involved. And there's a whole new array of problematic characters that uh, that Nicholas has to navigate. So that's book number two. Well, exciting. Definitely something to look forward to. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really enjoyed talking to you, Tony. This has been a great conversation. Yeah, and thank you. And it was enjoyable to read your book too. And to and the character Nick is so Nick Nicholas Ford, excuse me, is so interesting. And so are the other characters surrounding him, um, especially Vincent for me personally. I'm just really, yeah. really curious about him. So thank you again. So if you want to just tell everybody where they can follow you, find you, find your stuff. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I enjoy these uh, types of podcasts because you get to tell more about the story and the people. And so thank you so much for having me. Uh, the book right now is exclusively on Amazon.com. Uh, just was released in March. 
And you can see our book trailers, our excerpts, our blogs, our podcasts, where uh, Daniel and I talk for about 30 minutes on the whole process. If you're interested in Daniel Roth and some of his background, and that can be found at TonyRothAuthor.com or NicholasFordBooks.com. Uh, either one will take you to the site, uh, but Amazon.com has it for sale. Check it out. Um, really appreciate all the support that everyone's given it so far. So thanks again. Welcome. Thank you. And we will have those links in the show notes. So you can just head over there and just click the links there and it will take you there. So thank you again so much. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, great podcast. Great working with you. And um, again, uh, you know, check it out at Amazon.com. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at EAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod on Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one on Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod on TikTok at it's a fandom thing pod. If you would like to be a potential interview guest, you can head over to our website. It's a fandom thing and hit the contact us button there. Or you can email us directly at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and stop Asian hate. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.